millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people, and I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders past and present. This podcast episode contains references to mental illness and to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. It's the morning of Saturday, the 2nd of September, 1922. Reclining in his bed in a modest cottage in the inner west Sydney harbour suburb of Abbotsford, Henry Lawson is putting pencil to paper. In the story he's writing expanded on an incident described in a much earlier published work, his narrator is in London town. There, he meets a cockney that the storyteller, a little unkindly, dubs the conch on account of the size and prominence of his nose. Henry Lawson, now 55, is roughing out this yarn despite having had a rough morning. Actually, make that a past rough week, the latest in thousands of rough weeks that have made up his rough life. Last Wednesday, When Lawson was dropping off a manuscript to the bulletin, a young clerk had to help the pale, gaunt and crumpled legend get down the stairs to the cashier's office. Yet, despite his many infirmities, Lawson had greeted this lad with his trademark salute. That was, hand to his forehead with his palm outwards, before offering the boy a long, firm handshake. Friday, others had seen Lawson looking rather sickly as he made his way through the city. Nothing unusual there. Everyone knows Henry Lawson isn't a well man. Decades of hard drinking have taken their toll on body, mind and soul. Last year, he suffered a severe stroke. He's alive, but he's diminished. Just this morning, an hour ago, Lawson had a spell of feeling unwell and had his longtime landlady, carer and friend, Mrs Isabel Byers, summon his doctor, Adam Newton. 
the medico examined his famous patient where he lay. Dr. Newton didn't think there was anything wrong with Lawson, well, anything more than usual. So now, propped up in bed, the writer is continuing to write. He's about 300 words into this yarn, describing how his narrator, having asked directions from the conk, is unable to shake this man off. Lawson writes, I thanked him and went on, but in a moment or two, he was at my elbow. These are the last words he'll ever put to paper. Henry Lawson has just been struck by another cerebral hemorrhage. He drops his pen and paper, battles his way from his bed and tries to walk across the room, but he falls to the floor. It's here at 10 o'clock that Mrs. Byers finds him in the corner of the room, perhaps not quite dead, but not far from it. She rushes to summon Dr. Newton. When he arrives, there's nothing he can do. Henry Lawson is no more. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. Big, big thanks to all the great feedback for the Vampire Murder miniseries and to everyone who's become a supporter. Your shout-outs are at the end of the show, and the new bonus episode, The Mad Bomber of Boulder, is available now. And I've also put a preview at the end of this regular episode. If you'd like to give me an assist in making Forgotten Australia, contributing will cost you less than a cup of coffee a month, and the link is in your show notes or go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia. Henry Lawson passed out of this world 100 years ago today. Of course, his life and his work have not been forgotten. They've been the subject of fascination, celebration, interpretation, revision and criticism. Henry Lawson was the battler literary genius who embodied the spirit of all Australians whether they were bushmen on the wallaby waiting for the billy to boil or city people going about their lives as faces in the street. But Henry Lawson was also a racist and a wife-beater. He was a deeply flawed man who lived in a society convinced of the rightness of white Australia and who endured physical disability and mental illness, which he self-medicated with staggering amounts of alcohol, this addiction only exacerbating his own problems with himself and with others. My intention in this episode isn't to unpack these complexities or to provide another biography or another commentary on his prose and poetry. Experts have already done fine jobs with this, and they'll continue to do so. If you want to know more about Henry Lawson's life, as a starting point, I'd recommend to you Colin Roderick's 1991 biography, Henry Lawson, A Life, which delves into the light and darkness of our most famous writer. What I've set out to do with this episode are two things. The first is to revisit how Henry Lawson was farewelled 100 years ago this week, and the second is to examine one of the more obscure claims to fame made on his behalf, and that was that Henry Lawson was the world's first screenwriter. On the 9th of August 1922, Sydney's Evening News ran a little piece about Henry Lawson. The reason for the report was that British literary editor and critic Edward Garnett had published a new book of essays, and it included a chapter called Henry Lawson and the Democracy. Edward Garnett, who'd mentored and edited Joseph Conrad and D.H. Lawrence, wrote, quote, Australia can really show us a national writer in Henry Lawson. Lawson has the great strength of the writer writing simply as one of the democracy, and of the man who does not have to climb down from a class fence in order to understand the human nature of the majority of his fellow men. I have never read anything in modern English literature that is so absolutely democratic in tone. 
It may be claimed for Lawson that he of the Australian writers best pictures for us and interprets democratic Australia today, and that he is one of the very few genuinely democratic writers that the literature of Great Britain can show. Hearing what we already believed, said by someone important in London, was music to Australian ears. Hence this article seeing print. Otherwise though, in August 1922, Henry Lawson wasn't newsworthy. He was a bit like that saying about books being the same as old friends. You don't always need them, but it's good to know they're around. Then, suddenly, Henry Lawson wasn't. Sydney's The Sun had the news hours after he died. Their headline read, Henry Lawson, Death This Morning, Voice of Australia, Our Poet Laureate. The piece began, quote, Henry Hertzberg Lawson, the unappointed Poet Laureate of Australia, died this morning at Abbotsford. He had been in indifferent health for some considerable time, and recently a paralytic stroke left him considerably weakened, and with nothing to do but wait for the end. That wasn't quite true. Lawson had been, despite all of his troubles, still working as a writer. The article went on. Alive, Henry Lawson was a figure inconspicuous and unnoticed in a world that cared little for poetry. He was a child with a singing soul in a world of businessmen. He was the intrusive and therefore incomprehensible thing, a true poet. He went his ways, wrapped in his deafness and his dreams, along the lonely tracks out back, along the crowded Sydney streets, lonelier to him amid the throng than the solemn immensities of sunburnt plain. His voice was low, his soul was sad, his fine and mournful eyes looked out with a child's wistfulness at this strange world. He walked amongst us, the living poet laureate of a new nation, the first articulate voice of our nationhood. The Sun's obituary recalled his first verse, A Song of the Republic, published in the Bulletin in 1887 when he was 20 years old. The next year came what the paper called The Shock, the sensation of the poem Faces in the Street. The paper said, quote, A new poet, a mere boy, had broken into Australian literature. Of course, in between his first published work, his first breakthrough, and that last sentence he wrote on that Saturday morning he died, there had been so much poetry and prose, published in the country's leading newspapers and magazines, and collected in volumes such as While the Billy Boils, On the Track, Joe Wilson and His Mates, and In the Days When the World Was Wide, and other verses. Henry Lawson had also lived an unruly and often unhappy life. There were his travels through the bush and the drought-blasted outback, and to New Zealand and to London, his troubled and sometimes violent treatment of his wife Bertha, and the suffering he endured in jail and in mental institutions. Through it all, there was the drinking, and the writing. Just like he had good days and bad days, not all of his poetry and prose soared either, with even his fans acknowledging some of what he wrote had been dross. Lawson's personal and professional shades of grey were acknowledged in the Sunday Times' obituary the day after his death. Headlined, Henry Lawson, Death of Our Greatest Poetic Genius, this was penned by Adam Mackay, President of the Journalist Institute of New South Wales. He wrote, Lawson, in spite of the fitful depressions of his life and his many phases of dark failure, remains the most striking genius in Australian literature. His work always lacked cultivation. He never learned to write with the mastery and ease of a great artist, but behind every line he wrote, whether the line were a gem or a crude pebble, was an extraordinary sincerity, 
a suggestion of passion and power which seldom lacked the touch of greatness. One could say that Lawson's genius, from start to finish of his life, was greater than the work he actually produced. Mackay thought that Lawson's enduring value was inspiring other writers and Australia's appreciation of literature. His genius, Mackay wrote, was more impressive for its imperfection. In any case, quote, his name is certain to be remembered for centuries. But how to farewell such a giant of Australian letters? In the Sunday Times that day, Mackay, along with the president of the Sydney Press Club, Harold Burston, and president of the New South Wales Australian Journalists Association, Howard Knapp, put their names to an open letter that hinted Henry Lawson might not get his due now he was dead. Quote, Arrangements have been made that Henry Lawson shall be buried tomorrow afternoon at 2.15, the funeral starting from Wood Coffill and Co's mortuary in George Street. We hope that this will be a Commonwealth funeral. The Prime Minister, at the moment of writing, is on the train from Melbourne to Sydney and cannot be seen until this morning. We have no doubt that he will immediately authorise this last honour to Australia's supreme literary genius. The article went on, part pressure, part prediction. Quote, We are confident that tomorrow's papers will contain the announcement that the Commonwealth has granted the last sad dignity to a man whose deep genius touched the hearts of all Australians, high and low. What was the reason for this very public application of such pressure? Well, behind the scenes, the New South Wales Premier, Sir George Fuller, had refused a state service for Henry Lawson, agreeing only to cover the costs of a cheap coffin and burial. Henry Lawson's death had become a political football within hours of his passing. Adam Mackay and co. had just publicly punted this to Prime Minister Billy Hughes. With the ink still drying on their open letter, Mackay and his media mates also went down to Central Station to see the man himself when he stepped off the train from Melbourne. The little digger wasted no time in championing the cause of putting the people's poet to rest in fitting style. He delivered his own eulogy that was carried in all the papers the next day. Quote, He has gone, but his memory is enshrined in our hearts. It was my privilege to know him and to range myself with that great host of Australians who admired and loved him. Billy Hughes's tribute, though self-serving, was also genuinely poetic. The sort of speech writing that's rare in Australian politics a century later. He said of Lawson, quote, he loved Australia, and his verse sets out its charms, its vicissitudes, burning heat of the northerly and the bitter cold of the westerly wind, the storm, the calm, drought and flood, the endless plain shimmering beneath the summer sun, the dust of the travelling stock, the cracking of the stockman's whip, the roar of the floodwaters, the matchless beauty of the tall, waving, sweet-scented gums splashed with the yellow of the wattle the melting blue of the distant mountains, the evening campfire, the boiling billy, the damper and mutton of stockmen and swagmen, the humour, the pathos, the joys and sorrows, and above all, the dauntless spirit of the Australian. These were the things he loved, and loving them, set them down in glorious verse. None was his master. He was the poet of Australia, the minstrel of the people. And beneath this rhapsody, printed in bold, at least in the Daily Telegraph, was the Prime Minister's payoff. Quote, The Commonwealth decrees him a public funeral, and in the name of Australia, I invite all to pay him their last respects. 
Henry Lawson's state funeral was held on Monday the 4th of September. His remains lay in the mortuary chapel from the early morning. Hundreds, reported to be mostly friends, filed past for a last look at his soulful face. But if anyone missed out on that opportunity, his features would also be preserved in perpetuity in the plaster death mask that was taken of the man and of his moustache, this relic now being held by the Mitchell Library in Sydney. Just after midday, the casket was removed to St Andrew's Cathedral, where there was another continuous stream of mourners. The service began at quarter past two, with every seat filled, a total of some 1,000 people. The list of dignitaries filled many newspaper column inches. There was Henry's widow Bertha, and family members, and longtime friends, and supporters like Mrs. Byers and Mary Gilmore. But the bulk of the crowd were the muckety mucks of Australian society. Everyone from Billy Hughes down. Here and there, in the most prominent pews, the Lieutenant Governor, the Chief Justice, Federal and State Ministers, top military and policemen, industry leaders, university professors and newspaper opinion makers. Among these dignitaries was Jack Lang, then noted as being the recent State Treasurer. But Jack was different. He was, as we've heard in previous episodes, Henry Lawson's brother-in-law. Jack had known Henry since those heady days in the 1890s when, respectively, they'd wooed Hilda and Bertha Brett, daughter of Bertha Brett, leading socialist and also wife of William McNamara, socialist bookshop owner. Decades later, Jack Lang, in his memoir, I Remember, wrote witheringly of the scene at St Andrews, quote, They buried Harry like a lord, a state funeral for a down-and-out scribbler of verses and short stories. Lang went on, the poet who hated sham and pretense, the lover of the underdog, then in death to receive the homage of leading citizens. A week before, they would have dodged by on the other side to avoid him. Now, they wanted to bask in his reflected glory. Of course, on the actual day of the funeral, the son's report was far more reverent. Quote, In the hushed vastness of St Andrew's Cathedral this afternoon arose a simple aroma of wildflowers. Beside the traditional lilies piled on the purple-draped coffin of Henry Lawson lay great bunches of bush blossoms. Golden wattle was mixed with wreaths of those wild, unnamed flowers that grew away out where the melancholy poet humped his swag. Archdeacon Darcy Irvine told the congregation, quote, We have met to bury the body of Henry Lawson. The community has long found pleasure in his writings and as recognition of the merit of his work has given him a high and enduring place among Australian writers and poets. After tactfully saying it was a credit to federal and state governments that Henry Lawson had been accorded this funeral, the Archdeacon went on. I think he is placed with Kendall and Gordon as the most widely known and most gifted Australian poets. As yet, we are not a large community, but... In the years to come, when Australia has 50 or 60 million people instead of our 5 millions at present, the writers and literary men of those days will mark with interest the work of the earlier writers. I think that even then the human note of Henry Lawson will still be heard in the land. He rests from his labours. As I conclude on that note, some words of his come into my mind. They'll take the golden slip rails down and let poor Corny in. The Archdeacon was either misquoted or was slightly misquoting the 1891 Henry Lawson poem, Corny Bill. The verse actually works better the way the author intended it. Quote, His long life's day is nearly over. 
its shades begin to fall. He soon must mount his bluey for the last long tramp of all. I trust that when, in bush and town, he's lived and learnt his fill, they'll let the golden slip rails down for poor old Corny Bill. Despite this seeming quite appropriate, Jack Lang wrote, quote, Lawson himself might have chosen a few lines from Pass Karen. Yet, you can see why the Archdeacon didn't quote that one, which includes sentiments such as, My eyes are dry, I cannot cry, I've got no heart for breaking, but where it was in days gone by, a dull and empty aching. The Daily Telegraph reported that among the congregation, there was one fellow who might have come from many, perhaps any, of Henry Lawson's poems or short stories. Quote, A typical countryman, tall, sinewy and brown, stood like a gaunt statue as the coffin was borne towards the northern door. For a moment he wavered, and then burst into tears that flowed down his rugged cheeks. The crowd outside in George Street was 10,000 strong, so big that after the coffin was carried to the wildflower-covered motor hearse, it was some time before the mourners could weave their way through these masses to the cars that would take them to Waverley Cemetery. In 1897, Henry Lawson had written a poem called The Jolly Dead March. It opened like this. If I ever be worthy or famous, which I'm sadly beginning to doubt, when the angel whose place tis to name us shall say to my spirit, pass out, I wish for no snivelling about me. My work was the work of the land. But I hope that my country will shout me the price of a decent brass band. On the Monday of his funeral, Henry Lawson got his wish. As the procession moved off, the police band out front of the hearse played Handel's Dead March from Saul. The brass band played ahead of the procession as far as Darlinghurst. Then its members hopped on a tram so they could get to the Waverley Cemetery graveside and set up. As the procession made its way east, led by police troopers, people lined the streets of Paddington, Bondi Junction and Waverley, school children on their way home from school taking off their hats to stand bareheaded in respect. Several hundred people gathered at Henry Lawson's grave. Just as there'd been poetry in the taxpayer-funded brass band playing for him, so there was poetry in Lawson's final resting place. Back in 1887, when Henry's mother, the pioneering feminist and publisher Louisa Lawson, had come to Sydney, she'd made pilgrimage to this cemetery to visit the grave of poet Henry Kendall. Kendall's plot she found to be terribly neglected. This great literary figure, who was young Henry's idol, had a resting place marked with a simple wooden cross and a rusty tin wreath. The ground was overgrown with grass and with weeds. Louisa Lawson rectified this by starting a fund for a fitting memorial. Later, the trust that took over the fund decided Henry Kendall's remains should be removed to higher ground, and there a monument was built. Louisa Lawson had bought the vacant plot, and it was here that Henry Lawson would be buried. As the Daily Telegraph remarked, quote, It has been decided that Henry Lawson shall sleep there. No plot of soil in Australia probably could be more appropriate, and in none could the remains of Lawson more fittingly rest. But the Daily Telegraph also inadvertently anticipated the coming century in which Lawson would be reappraised and criticised when it printed a stanza from the man's own poem, Last Review, which was published in 1904. Quote, I was human, very human, and if in days misspent, I have injured man or woman, it was done without intent. 
If at times I blundered blindly, bitter heart and aching brow, if I wrote a line unkindly, I'm sorry for it now. Lawson's legacy would be for the future to determine. But the day after his funeral, a furor erupted over how it had been handled. As the evening news asked, was Henry Lawson, Australia's poet, in danger of a pauper's funeral? The Premier, Sir George Fuller, had claimed that unless he'd stepped in, that would have been the case. The Premier had made a bad move by doubling down on his already dodgy decision. Henry Lawson's close friend, Phil Harris, managing editor of the magazine Aussie, vehemently denied the claim, as did Lawson's daughter, Bertha. As early as 2pm on Saturday, Phil Harris, George Robertson of Angus and Robertson and other friends had been in touch with the Wood Coffield Funeral Parlour to set things in motion for Henry Lawson to have a formal and proper send-off. Harris had then suggested to the Premier's department that a man of such stature should receive a state funeral. Sir George Fuller had refused but agreed to meet the barest expenses. As Phil Harris now told the press, quote, just the cheap coffin and two mourning coaches. Harris had told Wood Coffill he'd personally cover the expenses for a good coffin and three coaches. He'd then consulted with Mary Gilmore and they discussed approaching Billy Hughes directly when he arrived in Sydney on Sunday morning. They also got in touch with Adam Mackay. Harris told the Daily Telegraph, quote, I expressed very strong indignation at the state's decision and their desire for a cheap funeral. Adam Mackay was just as angry. He contacted his fellow journalistic leaders. They wrote their open letter for the Sunday Times and then went to see Billy Hughes when he got off the train. The Prime Minister had his say and Henry Lawson got his day. Such a state funeral for an artist was unprecedented. This measure of official respect, along with the outpouring of popular grief and love, was, at least to the Daily Telegraph, a sign that Australia was changing, that this was the beginning of a new order. The prominence of Henry Lawson, Banjo Patterson, artists such as Tom Roberts and John Longstaff, the paper said, were a sign that, quote, the Australian public are no longer indifferent to the claims of art. Slowly but surely, we are marching on. Our writers are doing their part, our painters theirs, in advancing the cause of culture, and the public are responding. The paper continued, Here in Australia, we have been too busy with our sports and our chase after material wealth, but we are now beginning to alter all that. Australian filmmaking, which combined visual art with poetry and prose writing, wasn't included in that opinion piece. But cinema wasn't then considered to be any sort of legitimate art form. And that even included Beaumont Smith's While the Billy Boils, which adapted several Henry Lawson stories. This film had been released in 1921, and the author even appeared in the prologue. Money from that movie had helped sustain Henry Lawson in the last year of his life. It also did pretty well at the box office. But films then were considered to be disposable. That's one of the reasons so many silent movies are lost, including While the Billy Boils. But what's not lost is Henry Lawson's own far earlier cinematic effort. Back in 1922, his short story, titled The Australian Cinematograph, was just one of his many minor works. Yet, it's been claimed that this piece of prose is actually the world's first screenplay. Hold up. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What's remarkable is that the Australian Cinematograph was written and published in 1897-1898. The story pays tribute to Barcroft Boke's 1891 poem, Where the Dead Men Lie, which describes the hardships and tragedies of the outback. Lawson begins the Australian cinematograph by quoting the poem as an epigraph. Out on the waste of the never-never, that's where the dead men lie. There, where the heat waves dance forever, that's where the dead men lie. Lawson's narrator is haunted by this verse as he sits in the verdant tranquility of a schoolhouse veranda during what he calls a softly beautiful green and gold September afternoon. But even in this peaceful place that's close to the sea, he can't help but envisage death and remember that this land, Australia, both gave birth to this verse and killed the man who wrote it. Here, Lawson's talking about Barcroft Boke, who was found hanging in 1892, seemingly having taken his own life at the age of 26. Reprising the verse, Out on the waste of the never-never, that's where... Lawson cuts it short and then cuts to his main scene. In his story, Lawson uses Where the Dead Men Lie a bit like a soundtrack that swells before we segue to a new sequence. Now we're in the past, in the wastes of the never-never, where there's nothing but grey dust, solitary rocks and stunted shrubs, all of them below a, quote, blind sun blazing in a brassy sky. That Lawson has the screen in mind is implied in his language, quote, heat visibly rushing across every object in dancing, dazzling waves. Such a line might be more effective ordinarily as dancing heat waves rushed and danced across every object. But Lawson is asking us to watch this as well as to experience it. This effect is strengthened when he begins his next description, quote, In the foreground, a dry tank of clay pan from which the last pint of water has evaporated. This is like a screenwriter telling the director and cinematographer what to favour in framing a scene. Same goes when he introduces his characters in this sequence. And away to the right of the clay heap, between it and the dazzling horizon, three figures, three horses and two riders, on the glowing plain. Lawson seems to want us to hold this shot in our minds. Quote, Let the minutes lengthen into hours, he writes, before sketching how the men and beasts come closer. The drover, as Lawson's language makes clear, is one of his stock characters. Imagine him as that crying man in the cathedral and you wouldn't be too far off. But the Aboriginal character is nothing but a racist caricature, described as having quick monkey-like movements, quote, peculiar to lower races. In the story, despite the Aboriginal man's best efforts at digging, there's no water to be had here. All around them is dry desert and death. Lawson describes this with what could be a tilting and panning camera. Down from the sky, which hasn't darkened for rain in months, 
ahead into the endless mirage, to the south where dead men's tracks run for hundreds of miles, to the east and the blazing sun, and to the west where the dreadful central deserts await. But at least to the west there's some sort of hope, enlightening. So he sends the Aboriginal stockmen in that direction, chasing after the barest chance of rainwater. Using a stanza from Where the Dead Men Lie to get us there, Lawson now cuts to the pleasant scene of the selection, where the drover's wife waits for her husband with their children, including the baby son the man has not yet met. The contrast is stark and suspenseful through the use of this juxtaposition. Will the drover get back to the love, safety and plenty of this place? We're left with one of his sons standing on a fence rail, looking out into the gathering dusk. If there's any doubt Lawson was imagining this for the screen, it had seemed to be banished by the last line in this sequence. Quote, The scene fades, leaving the boy against the sky to the last, watching for father. Another cut, and we're back to the desert waterhole where we last saw the drover. Now, the scene has changed. Quote, Soft skies and sunshine, an opening plain of waving grass waist high and stretching as far as the eye can see. In the foreground, a pool of grey, clay-cold water rippling. Yet, it's not just rippling, it's also brimming over and rippling around bleached bones and blackened hides. The drover, his husband and father, is long dead, his remains lying in the water that could have saved him and his horses. His body's discovered by three men, this party including his brother. They also find his diary, and it includes his desperate last days, dying of thirst. The three men now have to decide who will take this document to his widow, and what this messenger is going to say. Once they've made their decision, quote, The scene fades rapidly, the third drover walking swiftly and restlessly, to and fro, to and fro, now with arms folded, now in his pockets, and with an expression as one suffering physical pain. Then we're back at the selection, with the wife and children, still awaiting the drover's safe return. The messenger, Lawson's character Andy, and his mother have come to break the bad news. Before they've arrived, before they've spoken a word, his widow knows at once that her husband is no more. Yet the blow is softened. The final part of the diary, describing his dehydration and desperation before his death, has been torn out. Andy tells the drover's wife that her husband died peacefully of heart disease. While most of the Australian cinematograph is purely visual, this last sequence introduces dialogue. Henry Lawson comments, quote, The last scene is also a speaking as well as a living picture to me, and a brighter one, in spite of it all, for the drover's wife is quiet now and sits tearful but resigned. Again, Lawson seems to be describing a scene, but also describing a picture. And he's not quite done, leaving us with a note of dread and tension in the very last sentence in which Andy has told his white lie, but quote, He never takes his solemn grey eyes from those of the drover's wife, lest she might, by a bare chance, doubt him. According to Colin Roderick, the Australian cinematograph was likely started in June 1897, while Henry Lawson was in New Zealand, and then completed back in Sydney just over a year later. The story was first published in Brooks's Australian Christmas Annual in 1898. As a measure of where movie making was in Australia at that time, 
From November 1894, Australia had an Edison kinetoscope parlour in Sydney. There, for a shilling, you could peer into the device's eyepiece and watch short novelty scenes, such as a man snorting snuff and sneezing, a lady doing a fan dance, and a couple of men boxing, or even a pair of boxing cats. It wasn't until August 1896 that visiting illusionist Carl Hertz took the flickers public with a big screen when he demonstrated the cinematograph at the Melbourne Opera House. This was billed as the sensation of the 19th century and the most startling scientific marvel of the age. Just a month later, in Sydney, Australia's own cinema experiments began, thanks to Marius Sestier, a visiting representative of pioneering French filmmakers Auguste and Louis Lumiere. Likely with the assistance of Australian society photographer Henry Walter Barnett, Sestier made Australia's first films. One showed a roller skating buffoon in Prince Alfred Park and the other captured people leaving a ferry at Manly. Other film experiments followed, but Sestier and Barnett's crowning achievement came on Tuesday the 3rd of November when they filmed the Melbourne Cup. By the end of that month, Sydney's Criterion Theatre was packed with people watching a selection of these films and, for the very first time, seeing their own people and places on the silver screen. Just over six months after that, Henry Lawson began writing The Australian Cinematograph. In modern terms, the Australian cinematograph is not a screenplay, but its title and its intentions seem to set it apart from an ordinary short story. It can thus be considered a sophisticated screen treatment, which lays out character roles, the setting and visual opportunities, the drama, conflicts and the themes. Even so, Henry Lawson was writing it for a reading audience and for a payday. As such, he had to make sure it was readable just as it was. Even a mind as fertile as his would have found it hard to imagine the Australian cinematograph being made for the screen. That's because, as we've heard, filmmaking was rudimentary, and in Australia at least, confined to actualities, which meant pointing the camera at an event, like a roller skating buffoon or people getting on or off a ferry. Complex visuals and scene changes and characters and dialogue, whether via intertitles or recorded sound, were all years or decades away. Yet, the Australian cinematograph would be made. It happened at a period when the local movie industry was undergoing rebirth. While Australian feature filmmaking had a strong run before the First World War, it struggled in the 1920s in the face of Hollywood imports and anti-competitive practices. Then, the coming of sound, the Great Depression and the Second World War all but killed movie making down under. And it stayed close to dead for decades. By 1971, things were changing. Peter Weir had made the comedy Holmesdale, and Tim Burstall had done Stork. Bruce Beresford was over in London preparing The Adventures of Barry McKenzie, which would be released in 1972. Yet the films we associate with Australia's new wave, Picnic at Hanging Rock, Sunday Too Far Away, Don's Party, The Devil's Playground, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, My Brilliant Career and Mad Max were all years off. However, in 1972, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Henry Lawson's death, the Australian Commonwealth Film Unit adapted the Australian Cinematograph. Director Keith Gow wanted to make an adaptation for modern audiences, so he did make changes. The most obvious of which was renaming the film Where Dead Men Lie. 
He also introduced a letter-writing scene and more characterisation of the wife and kids on the selection through dialogue. But the 15-minute film, which was shot in desert and pastoral locations, is otherwise pretty faithful to Henry Lawson's darkly ironic vision. For that, the audience could also thank a narration that used parts of the original text and the voices of future stars Max Cullen and Jack Thompson. One of the two men behind the camera responsible for the visuals was Dean Semler. This was his first film, and 20 years later, he'd be up there at the Academy Awards accepting the Oscar for filming Dances with Wolves. As a short, Where Dead Men Lie wasn't going to break any box office records, particularly in 1972, when successful Australian films were still pretty rare and cinemas were packed with people seeing The Godfather, The Poseidon Adventure, Deliverance and Cabaret, among others. But Where Dead Men Lie was seen as a supporting film, back when cinemas offered such, and later it was screened on television, bringing the Australian cinematograph to an audience three quarters of a century after it was written. So was Henry Lawson the world's first screenwriter? I'm not sure it's possible to say that. No doubt dreamers in France, the United States and the United Kingdom were also at the end of the 19th century setting down scenarios on paper in the hopes they'd be seen on screen. Some may even have been produced, though they're now likely lost. At the very least, given how primitive Australian filmmaking was in 1897, and how pointed the scene directions were in the Australian cinematograph, I think it's entirely reasonable to say that Henry Lawson was our first screenwriter. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. This episode was made with the assistance of supporters, whose contributions helped me buy the DVD of Where Dead Men Lie from the National Film and Sound Archive. If you're interested in seeing it yourself, you can order the film online. Supporter contributions also help me secure second-hand copies of Colin Roderick's Henry Lawson Alive and the late Professor Roderick's Henry Lawson, the master storyteller, commentaries on his prose writings. A big shout-out to everyone who's become a supporter recently. Firstly, to Carly Fletcher and her family, who, in addition to supporting, went to Dorothy Everett's grave at Sandgate Cemetery up near Newcastle and left some flowers on behalf of all Forgotten Australia listeners. Carly, thanks so much. Big cheers also to new supporters Ben Irvine, Ken Thompson, Amy and Brendan, Wayne Atkins, Tim Thornton, Siona Halliday, Elizabeth Gale, Abby Batt, Erin Crook, Deborah Starkey, David Forsyth, Elise... GJ, Angela Rizzio, Julie Fletcher, Lyndall Bell, Marius, Ashley Newton-Spence and Catherine Carlyle. If you'd like to become a supporter of Forgotten Australia, the Patreon link is in your show notes. I've also listed a summary of some of the bonus episodes you'll be able to enjoy. Speaking of which, stick around now for a preview of the latest bonus episode, The Mad Bomber of Boulder. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. It's just before midnight, Sunday the 1st of February 1942, and there are high spirits over high-stakes dice games in the dining room of a boarding house in Boulder in the Western Australian goldfields. 
under a bare light bulb. Amid cigarette smoke, some 30 chaps are crammed into this little space. But these men are nothing if not accustomed to cramped conditions. Those playing, those watching on, are almost all minors. The men range in ages, from their mid-twenties to their mid-fifties. Some are single, others married with children. Some have their families here in Boulder. Others have their parents, siblings, wives and sons and daughters back home. Apart from a couple of Australian-born miners, home for most means Yugoslavia and Montenegro, though there are a few fellows from Italy and one from Macedonia. These men were born and raised in ancient villages, in lands of forests, near to the warm waters of the Adriatic Sea and beneath soaring mountains that are blanketed in snow at this time of year. But Boulder, a town less than 50 years old, sprung up out of a gold rush in the flat Australian desert, is their home away from home now. Some of the men have been here for decades, others just a few years. All of them do dirty and dangerous work for modest money. Tonight, they're hoping to strike it lucky on the dice. Win or lose, such games can help a man take his mind off his worries. And these are worrying times, with the war worse every single day. The Japanese are about to try to take British Singapore and the American Philippines. Australia is surely next in their sights. But for the men playing dice this Sunday night, the war has already hit home in horrific ways. The newspapers for weeks have been carrying unimaginably brutal stories of Hitler and Mussolini's puppet rulers and their collaborators pursuing the total extermination of Serbs in Yugoslavia. A leading Nazi has said they won't stop until all the Serbs are dead. In Montenegro, partisans have lost a desperate war against Axis-backed overlords. Dalmatia also remains occupied by the Italians. Here, on the other side of the world, the miners can only hope and pray that their friends and family are safe. For now though, the game goes on. Bets are laid, men crowd around. Others stand back, chatting in the doorways and by the windows to the sleepout. Above the cheers and the conversation, the midnight mine whistle blows. In 10 minutes from now, half the men in this room will be dying or dead. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the Forgotten Australia bonus episode, The Mad Bomber of Boulder. Italian, Yugoslavian, and other Southern European immigrant workers had long been a fixture on the Western Australian goldfields. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.